You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen, amen. Well, let me invite you again to turn to Acts chapter 12. We're, uh, again, focusing here this morning as we study God's word, and we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 12 of Acts chapter 12. And so let's go ahead and read God's word together. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your word this day. And Father, we pray, Lord, that as it is preached and heralded, Father, that you would give me words that would be profitable for the building up of your church. And Lord, for the proclamation of the gospel, Lord, that those who might hear it might repent and believe and trust in Christ Jesus this day. So Father, we thank you. Lord, for your word, and Lord, we thank you that there is nothing, no one, no person who can oppose your gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I don't think anyone uh, likes conflict. I think if you're like me, you tend to just avoid it at all possible costs. But, but you know, as Christians today, as those who preach and herald the gospel of Jesus Christ— When you preach Christ, that will often put you in opposition with worldly powers. When you preach Christ, the world will often reject you and and oppose your message. And throughout the history of the church, that opposition has often come from those who wield the most power. 
I'm thinking primarily here, political leaders. And so though Christ has no rivals as king, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, there will still be many who will try to challenge his lordship and who will oppose Christ and the people who represent Christ. And we see that happen here in the text before us. As the Christian gospel comes on the scene, as it begins in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, and we see the church begin to rapidly grow in number, and many and many more begin to call upon the name of Jesus Christ, the authorities quickly recognize that the Christian movement poses a threat to their own power and their control over people's lives. But, you know, the persecution has been with us as we've been walking chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. The persecution originates among Jewish religious authorities. Those are the ones who are most immediately threatened by this Christian movement. And so they're the ones that instigate the persecution against the church. But here we see in Acts 12, that there's a turn, there's a change that happens. Because the persecution is no longer just residing among religious authorities, but here we see Herod himself get in on the action, using the full weight of Roman power to bring out his persecution upon the church in order to snuff them out, in order to try to eliminate them. And Herod, this isn't his first rodeo. He's had opponents in the past. He, he knows how to handle them. And he knows that if you want to, to snuff out this Christian movement, what you have to do is you have to target the leaders of that movement. And so Herod begins to strategically focus his persecution and use his power to begin to arrest and execute the leadership of the Christian church. But we see from this text in Acts 12 that clearly... Hold on just a second. All right, this is going to be interesting. My iPad overheated, so my notes are no more. <laughs> Apparently, that's a thing with iPads I didn't think about. So let's keep going. We'll see how much I remember off the top of my head. That'll be fun. We'll pray that the Spirit will help. Um, so as we see in this, in this passage here, that Herod begins to strategically target Christian leaders uh, so that the, the message of the gospel would be hindered and deterred. But as we see from Acts chapter 12, that there is no one, no thing that can oppose the church of Christ. That even though there are these political leaders, powerful men like Herod, that wish to oppose the church of Christ, that it will be impossible because God will intervene and God will restore and God will establish his church. But anyway, as we look at this text here in Acts chapter 12, we see that there is no one and no thing that can oppose the gospel. That the opposition here in the early age of the church, that opposition is largely grounded. We see that the opposition in the early church is really aggressive and violent against the church, isn't it? But as we think about our day, most of us aren't facing violent persecution as believers in America. But the persecution that we have to fight against are really those that, that really have no desire uh, for the gospel. There's a sort of spiritual lethargy, a, a just a sort of uh, apathy towards the gospel that we are often constantly fighting against. You see, while there might not be those of us that are raising the sword against us as Christians in the church today, what we do see happen is that people just largely don't care what we have to say. We've been pushed to the side. 
but the message of the gospel has been cast away. So as we see here in the text, and here's the sermon summary I want to draw out for us, it's rather simple, is that no one can oppose the advance of the gospel. No one can oppose the advance of the gospel. And I think this provides us great encouragement as we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly resistant, increasingly opposed to the message of salvation found in Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want to highlight for us this morning is the violence against the church. The violence against the church. And I want to highlight that in verse 1 through 5 here of Acts chapter 12. So we see here, as we shift back to the Jerusalem church, we see that James, the brother of John, is arrested and executed at the hands of Herod. And of course, this is a major blow to the church. And this James here is not the James that would write the letter of James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of John. This is the the, the James who, along with his brother John, went to Jesus and, and said, Lord, let us sit at your right and your left hand. And this is what Jesus responded to James. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And here we see in Acts chapter 12, James, the apostle, the brother of John is martyred. He's executed. He's baptized in a baptism of blood. And it's ironic that this is happening at the same time as Passover, as Passover. Typically, this is, look at what the text says in verse 3. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Typically, you don't execute people on this sacred week in Jerusalem. But here we see that an execution took place at the command of Herod. James is beheaded, and the blood of this apostle flowed on the soil. This is a a tragic and disruptive time. And you can imagine that the church is obviously devastated at James's death. You know, the church has already been fatigued by persecution. We've already seen how after Stephen's martyred and the church is scattered, they're kind of having to to hide away, even as they're trying to gather in public. They're, They're constantly on edge, fearful of persecution by the Jewish authorities. And now not only has the Jewish authorities been exerting violence upon them, but now Herod, the powerful Herod, is getting in on the persecuting action. And now he's strategically targeting the leaders of the church with the full weight of Roman authority and government and military might. And not only that, but they've already killed one of their key leaders, James, the apostle. And not only has James now died, but they've arrested Peter. Peter, the leader of the church, the leader of the apostles, they've arrested him, and he's in jail. And any day now, Herod's going to bring him out and chop off his head as well. You can sense how the church is completely overwhelmed, completely discouraged. What can be done to stop Herod and can stop him from from exerting violence against the church? Their concern, is this going to be the end of the Christian movement? As they take out their leaders one by one, are they going to be next? Who can stop a man as powerful as Herod when he is the one who's opposing the Christian church? And so what does the church do? Well, we are told what the church does. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church earnest prayer. 
for him was made to God by the church. You see, the, the, the saints in Jerusalem were completely powerless. They had no control. They couldn't hire a political lobbyist to go and try to plead their case before Herod. There was nothing they could do. They were completely at the mercy of, of Herod's whim and power, so it seemed. So all the church could do was pray. And that, my friends, was more than enough. Luke is so very intentional in the way he lays out this out this account in, in, in Acts 12, showing us that God is directly responding to the prayers of his church as they call out to him. And so the church does the only thing that they can do, and that is enough. They gather together and they begin to pray earnestly that Herod would have mercy, that, that Peter might get out in some sense. They don't even know how God is going to, to fulfill their prayers, but they just start praying. And that is more than enough. And I have to ask us that question as we think about the opposition that we may face as believers, the challenges that we face in our present day as we try to advance the gospel in this American culture that's becoming increasingly hard in its soil. We have to ask ourselves that question, can, do we go to the Lord in prayer? Is that our first response? Is that how we respond when crisis is upon us? You know, I think that's something we don't instinctively do, that most of us try to resort to other matters, taking things into our own hands. Few of us just stop what we're doing and devote ourselves to prayer. You know, we live in a day and age where there is just a spiritual opposition. There is just unconcern. People are just un gospel. If you go and try to share the gospel with someone, they just largely just seemed unenthused. Why does it matter? Why does it care? My life is good. There's just such a hardness of heart as we try to, to sow the good seed of the gospel in our world today. And perhaps what God would have us do is to get on our knees and begin to pray that the opposition we face in our own generation would be lifted would be alleviated. And we might not even know how God might answer those prayers, but we should get in our knees and pray. You see, the moment when we are most powerless, that is the moment we should most be in prayer. And that's exactly what the early church does. They find themselves on a brink of a crisis and they go to their knees and they plead that God might intervene and help. You see, prayer is an act of faith. It's a declaration of trust. It's a confession of powerlessness that when you pray, you call out to the Lord and you call out to him and ask for help. You see, the early church, even though they were facing a seemingly hopeless situation, they did not give in to their despair or their hopelessness, but instead they dropped down on their knees together and began to pray and pray and pray and pray. May we do the same when we face opposition and hardships in our lives. So we've seen the violence against the church, but secondly, I want to help us see the deliverance that God provides for the gospel in verse 6 through 19. Verse 6 through 19. So the night before Peter's execution, we're told that Peter is sleeping in prison, and he's got two soldiers next to him. There's soldiers at the doors. He, got, he has chains on his limbs, and we see that God answers the prayers of his church. The Lord answers them. God 
angel to rescue Peter from prison with this miraculous prison escape, perhaps the most miraculous prison escape in history. So the angel shows up that night. Peter's half asleep, so much so that he just thinks he's having a dream or a vision or something like that. And so the angel supernaturally keeps all of these guards asleep. He, Because again, these guards, as we will find out, losing a prisoner would cost them their lives. And so they wouldn't just fall asleep on the job, particularly not just one prison guard, but all of the prison guards. But yet the angel kept them asleep. The angel commands Peter to to get up. The chains slide off. Peter gets dressed. And then Peter follows the angelic guide straight out the prison. Even the gate in the way proved to be no obstacle to God who simply opened the gate. So Peter busts out of prison simply by following this heavenly escort straight out of the prison cell. No planning, no conspiring, just miraculous intervention at the, at the prayers of God's people by the hand of God. And so Peter walks out. And when Peter walks out and when he realizes what just happened, Peter kind of realizes, that, hey, I'm not just dreaming, I'm actually free. The Lord really did just send an angel to me and freed me. From prison, delivering me not just from prison, but delivering him from execution. So Peter now stands in the street as a free man in the middle of the night. So what would you do? Not knowing what to do, Peter said, well, I'm going to go find the church. And so Peter goes and he goes to Mary's house. This is Mary, who is the mother of John Mark. John Mark's going to come up a little bit more in the coming chapters. John Mark was a close companion of Peter. He's the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. And he will soon be going with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. This is this John Mark. And so even late into the night, we see that at Mary's house, the church is gathered for prayer and they're interceding for Peter and they're praying that God might deliver their leader, this apostle, from danger. And so as we see that Peter gets to the, to the house and he starts knocking on the door. And so Rhoda, a servant girl, comes and, and hears knocking at the door, wonders who could be this, this late in the middle of the night. And so Rhoda opens the door and she, she sees Peter, hears his voice. And so she runs back in without even opening the door and tells the church, guess what? Peter is outside. And they all think she's crazy, that she's just seen his angel or something like that. And so eventually she finally goes back out and lets Peter in. And the church discovers that while they were praying, God had already been answering their prayers in the deliverance of Peter. And so Peter continued knocking. They opened, they saw him, verse 16, and they were amazed. And so Peter drew them near, and Peter told them just how God answered their prayers. Peter told them how he had brought them out of prison. And Peter said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then, of course, for safety, Peter departed and went to another place. This is an important reminder for us. One of the big questions that sometimes we have as Christians is, does prayer really make much of a difference? Do our prayers really matter? If God is sovereign, if God is in control, if he knows the beginning and the end, then what difference does my prayer make pleading and petitioning the Lord in this way? You know, do we think of the early church here and their prayers for Peter? Do we just 
see this as just some sort of prayer pageantry where it's not really accomplishing anything. God's going to do, he's going to release Peter anyway, and so it doesn't really matter if we pray or not. God's just going to do what he's going to do. You see, as we think about what God's word says as Christians, we should never allow our doctrine of sovereignty to diminish the importance of prayer. If we've done that, something has really gone off with our theology. We see that the Bible insists that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Every decision that he makes is in accordance with his will, laid out from the before the very foundations of the earth. But yet at the same time, God tells us that your prayers make a difference. This is the wonderful mystery of prayer and the sovereignty of God is that God has chosen to accomplish his purposes in this world through the means of his people praying. That means that your prayers make a real difference. They make a real change. God responds to the prayers of his people. In his sovereignty, God has worked it out that he will accomplish his purposes and he will respond to the people's prayers to bring about his redemptive plan and will. And I think this is such encouragement to us to heed Jesus' words that we have not because we ask not. You see, this passage here, Luke is so intentional in the way he designs it, right? In the way he describes these events. Look at verse 5. He was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made. Next verse, verse 6. God is answering the prayer. He is responding to the prayers of his people. And even as Peter is finally freed, even though the angel delivers him, he's knocking on the door. What is the church doing? They're in the room together, praying and interceding. You see, corporate prayer as a church, praying as individual, this is such an important component to our lives. And as we see God deliver Peter from prison, from execution, we see the importance and the effects of our prayers upon our present crisis and situation. And that leads thirdly here to what we see is the multiplication of the gospel, the multiplication of the gospel. So after Peter is freed, we see that Luke shifts the intention back to Herod. So let's look at verse 18. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So we see that after the day after is a a tumultuous event, right? The guards realize that Peter is gone and these guards lose their lives because they lost the apostle Peter. And again, Luke emphasizes this to help us see that this wasn't some inside job. This was miraculous intervention by the hand of God. Peter has been freed by God's power in response to the people's prayers. And then, of course, Peter went down from Judea to Caesarea, or excuse me, then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea to spend time there. And now we see this idea that the gospel being unopposed. Here is Herod, this powerful military man who's been intentionally afflicting persecution upon the leaders of the Christian church. And here we see Luke tells us that God takes him out. 
And an interesting anecdote here is we see that, that Herod, of course, goes to make this sort of peacekeeping mission to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they, he goes down and he makes an agreement, some sort of peace treaty with them. And on this appointed day, verse 21, we see that Herod put on his royal robes, right? Josephus describes these as kind of glittering silver robes. If Herod was outside now in this heat wearing these robes, they would shine and glitter and sparkle. And again, the image is that Herod is approaching the people and he looks divine-like, right? He's, he's transcendent in his appearance and in the radiance of his outfit. And he speaks with authority. And, and we see how the people respond to this display of Herod's power. The people were shouting, verse 22, the voice of a God and not of a man. And we see what happens next, verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You see, Herod, this one who thought he was so powerful, who thought he was God-like, was struck down by the one true God. You see, Christ Jesus will have no other rivals. And those who claim to be a rival to the power of God will be struck down by the power of God. And so we see that even in this intense state-sponsored persecution that breaks out against the church, we see that God takes out the man responsible for that persecution. And here's the fascinating thing. Not only has God answered the prayers of the church in the deliverance of Peter, but we see that God answered the prayers of the church in a surpassing and unexpected sort of way. Not only did God free and liberate Peter from martyrdom at this moment, but God also took out the one responsible for the persecution. Herod was cut down. He was killed by the power of the angel of the Lord. And so here we see the response in verse 24. Because of all this, because of the church praying, because of God's intervention, we see in verse 24 but the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. You see, even though the opposition wanted to diminish the gospel, they didn't want it to go forward, they didn't want it to be spread any further, we see that the opposite ends up happening because God's people pray and God responded graciously to the prayers of his people. And we see that the word of God goes forward. This wonderful good news of the gospel that, that pronounces that Christ is the King of Kings. This wonderful good news that describes the, the coming of Jesus Christ, fully righteous, dying in the place for sinful men and women like you and me. So that by his atoning blood, by his death upon the cross, that our sins are washed away. And that not only has Christ died in our place for our sins, but according to the plan of the Father, God raised his son on the third day, crowning him in resurrected glory and victory. You see, the risen Christ, this message of the gospel continued to go forth, even though there were many who opposed it. And I think as we look to Acts chapter 12, this gives us great comfort knowing that as we live in our own generation with our own unique opposition to the gospel, we can find great comfort in knowing that no one can oppose the advancement of the gospel. 
we can proclaim Christ boldly, confidently, fearlessly, knowing that God's kingdom will stand forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the king and he is the Lord. And so as we consider what all this means for us today, let me encourage you today, if you don't know Jesus, if you have not heard the gospel, I pray that you wouldn't respond like Herod. I pray your heart might might recoil in, in opposition and resistance to the message of Jesus Christ. But I pray that you would humble yourself that you would examine your heart and see the, the sin and condemnation that you rightly deserve, but that you would also be enamored and overjoyed at the wonderful good news that Christ has died for sinners like you and like me, and that anyone who might repent of their sins and trust in Jesus be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life in Christ Jesus. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, I pray that you would not oppose him in your soul, that you would that you would confess him as the good king and the good Lord that he is. And so as we respond to God's word this morning, respond in joy and in prayer, thanking the Lord for his gracious help as the gospel goes forth unopposed. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather, Lord, this morning, we are grateful, Lord, for your word, your good and precious word. And Father, we thank you for this needed encouragement and reminder, Lord, where we're so often prone to being discouraged, discouraged about our country, discouraged about the state of the West, discouraged about the lostness that pervades our world, discouraged by our evangelism that just seems to bear so little fruit. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged, encouraged to go to you in prayer, encouraged to plead to you, Father, for revival and awakening among these lands. And Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would hear the prayers of your people and respond accordingly. Father, we pray that you would glorify the name of Jesus Christ as your people come before you in earnest and devoted prayer, Lord. And we pray that the gospel might go among our own city unopposed that there would be those who would hear the good news of Christ and respond in repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for those who are gathered here this morning, that those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might find their hearts overjoyed by your wondrous grace. But Father, I pray particularly for those who, who have been opposing the gospel for a long time. Lord, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would convict them and soften their hearts and their resistance to your word. And Lord, that we might see even this morning the gospel multiply and advance among us as you would save the lost who are gathered here this morning. Lord, you are and Lord, we marvel at your sovereignty. We marvel at your grace. We marvel at the protection you offer your saints. And so, Father, we come before you with great gladness of hearts, thanking you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who we pray. Amen. Amen.